The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so I'm settling in to how it feels to be here on whatever kind of device you're in front of with this particular configuration of people this hour of the day. And if it feels right to close your eyes, you can close them. You're welcome to turn away from the screen if that's more supportive for you. It can be helpful to start just by grounding in your body. Noticing your feet, contacting floor or cushion or mat. Noticing the contact of your hips or buttocks on whatever surface you're on. Feeling that support. Mm. And noticing, too, that you're aware, the quality of being present to whatever's happening right now. Perhaps taking an intentional deep breath or two. And inviting that awareness to be at the forefront. The forefront of your attention. Perhaps inviting, may the body relax, soften. Softening the face and eyes. Neck and shoulders. Upper back and chest. Perhaps noticing the breath. Gently expanding and contracting the rib cage as it moves through. Inviting those muscles too to soften. Noticing the motion of the belly or the diaphragm of breathing. And softening, inviting the softening of the viscera, your core. Inviting the arms and hands. Hips, buttocks, legs, feet, all to soften. Ground here now. Allowing awareness to fill this body as water percolates into earth. Saturating, nourishing. Then inviting to may the mind and heart relax. Noticing the quality, attitude, atmosphere in the mind.
and inviting a soft allowing of whatever wants to arise. It's helpful. Can attune directly to the sense of awareness and whatever arises within it. Open awareness. Or if you're more accustomed to a specific anchor of attention, gently inviting in breath or body as the central point. Either way, returning here, this, now. The soft, allowing invitation. We'll continue in silence for the most part in the next 20 minutes.
Noticing, am I aware? What's obvious in this moment?
Thank you for the sincerity of your practice. This has become the custom on the day as I teach here. The invitation is to stay in silence for a couple of moments and take a moment to offer kindness, metta, friendliness to your fellow practitioners here in this Zoom room, seen or unseen. And knowing that as you're doing that, you're receiving loving kindness, friendliness from each of them. Thank you. If you um, are comfortable doing so, the invitation is to turn your video back on. If you're not, that's fine. Um, And I'm just going to offer 25 minutes or so, half an hour of reflections, and then there'll be time for questions and answers, discussion for those who want it. So today, I'm going to talk about invitations and resolves uh, in Buddhist practice and how those kind of intersect with the mind and also how they work with the more open awareness style of practice that has been the tradition in this particular meeting. So... um, Resolves, the Pali word for that is aditana. Aditana, which combines um, the prefix adi or higher with tana or standing. And Ajahn Suchito, a monk in the Thai forest tradition, kind of glosses this as a higher standing place or standing on higher ground. It gives kind of a flavor of what. Um, a resolve can be. It's not unrelated from aspirations, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Right? In, um, in the ancient Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, the Buddha talks about resolves in a few ways. Excuse me. The most... Clear resolve is the kind of aspiration for freedom. That's the one that is spoken about the most directly from the Buddha's mouth that's recorded in the teachings. There's also more specific resolves or invitations that can be used during formal practice. And um, in the commentaries, these are associated with basically resolving to enter some kind of beneficial state of mind. Right. And you see the motion I'm making with my hand as kind of, you know, a clear one hand on the other kind of firmness. So that works for some people. It can be really encouraging and powerful to do that. If one does it, it is, in my own experience, best accompanied with a sense of releasing the resolve after making it. So making the intention, the resolve, it's a little heavier than intention maybe, and then letting go of it, allowing it to, it's done its work and allowing the mind, the conditions to just unfold from there rather than hanging on to it or beating ourselves up about it or creating an expectation. Um, This can also be the function of an invitation. And invitations 
or something that Andrea Fella, the lead teacher of this group on sabbatical this year, it's something that she uses a lot in her practice and I found very beneficial in mine. And it's softer. I, I used a couple of them in the guided meditation. May the body relax. Just dropping that in as a possibility. May the mind and heart relax. So those are perhaps a kind of resolve, but they're invitational. There's not the same kind of energy. And I'm using sort of a beckoning motion right now with my hands, right? It's more of that. It's more of a come if you like, come if you can, come if you will. So that kind of openness works as well or better for a lot of people at different stages of practice, particularly in this more open awareness form of practice, where the idea is to shut nothing out, right? To allow. So it's in that spirit. Whichever way you do it in your practice, resolve or invitation, either one can be used to help develop capacity. Capacity, um, in other words, an embodied learning process, Um, whether it's the power to concentrate or experience a moment or more than a moment of loving kindness or metta or um, cultivate more awareness in daily life, right? Even the question, am I aware, is an invitation to awareness, Yeah. In addition to formal practice, invitations and resolves can be about encouraging a broader course of action, a broader course of action in our lives. So that can be um, as sort of culturally relevant. I don't know how relevant this is in Europe, but in the United States, it's very common at the new year to set a new year's resolution to kind of resolve, right? Like an intention an aspiration. Um, In practice, choosing resolves well, just like choosing a resolution well, can require wisdom and discernment. Um, And the most enduring ones do involve this sense of aspiration I talked about last time, this bigger sense of a why. Why am I doing this? For the sake of better relationships in my life, for the sake of freedom, for the sake of spreading goodness in the world, whatever it is, for the sake of awakening. There's um, a quote from an Indian teacher, and I've heard this actually out of the mouth of a, a prominent Tibetan teacher, Sharon Salzberg, talks about this. I don't know the original source, but I'm pretty sure it was um, an esteemed teacher in India. And this teacher talks about um, that spiritual practice without the intention to benefit ourselves and others. In my words, it's kind of a rarefied form of entertainment if there's not that intention. It's like, okay, you know, it's fine. (laughs) And um, this teacher talks about it being like rowing a boat vigorously without untying it from the dock first. Right? You're expending effort, got the feeling of the water, you might not be going anywhere. So even that works with daily life resolutions. Like, you know, if there's not a sense of the why, if there's not a sense of the bigger picture, whether it's for my own greater health and well-being to show up for my friends and family, or if it's something much broader, it's kind of hard to make it stick. (laughs) There's not this sense of why. So this why, again, kind of circles back to, is it an invitation? Or is there a way of asking the question and allowing? And part of what this allows is um, to notice when feedback or results start to happen in our lives, whether it's in our own bodies or in the world. I, I remember many years ago, um, I got a repetitive strain injury and it kind of blew up into this chronic pain thing. 
And one of my early doctors looked at me and he said, look at your relationship to caffeine. I was like, my relationship to caffeine? We have a relationship? (laughs) What? But sure enough, um, I noticed that caffeine, um, and this does, it does this in certain percentage of people, promoted a sort of low level anxiety. And that hooked right into feelings of discomfort. So I was getting feedback from the world as I started to cut back on this particular substance. I got softer, quieter. I was less, had less physical pain and definitely less kind of low level, you know, fear, anxiety, static, right? So that's an example of feedback from reality or feedback from our own actions, right? You shift something, notice a change. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. And tweak the next action based on reflecting on how that went, that cause and effect, that conditionality. In chaplaincy circles, we call this action, reflection, action model. So action, noticing the feedback and the reflection, and then the next shifted action. It's um, got fancy names in the world of um, sort of process sociology and stuff like that, that I won't get into, but there's always the feedback loop. It can take time. And sooner or later, you might notice, or I might notice, whether a particular invitation, whether a particular resolve, inquiry, course of action is helpful or not helpful, suitable and wise or counterproductive. And it's not like it's a static answer, right? Something that works really, really well, highly adaptive for a while. Then we evolve or our conditions change and it doesn't fit anymore, right? So it's, it's a collaboration with how life is showing up. Um, we can adjust based on this, on these conditions, on this sort of shifting pattern of the interplay of all that's coming up in ourselves and others in the world. And then... Noticing the difference between what's helpful and unhelpful and what's pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes those are the same thing, and sometimes they're not, especially in the short term, right? Like, still to this day, like, there's something about my body type and maybe even just my sort of cognitive type that when I start heavy aerobic exercise, it is pretty much always unpleasant for the first five to seven minutes and it's just gotten used to it it's like okay this isn't going to feel good (laughs) and then it feels good or fine or great or whatever but just to learn for ourselves okay when is the unpleasant feedback teaching me something important and when is it just part of the conditions that need to be worked through to shift to something that's more valuable right It's really helpful noticing, many of you already know this, that our perceptions in the world, internally and externally, it's shifting and changing at every moment. There's inconstancy, right? Anicca, always happening. And no one experience is usually all pleasant or unpleasant, at least not for very long. Shift, 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 shift. Like even taking a shower, just notice, you know, most people find showers pleasant. I do. Um, If you really tune in, there are little micro moments of not so great mixed in there, just like there are micro moments of awesome mixed into a heavy workout, even if it doesn't feel good. Um, So noticing that and then noticing too, what one's own mental tendency is for different things. Like many of us, many, many of us tend to amplify the negative in certain situations or many situations. And there's a certain subset of people or situations or circumstances or activities where the overall gloss might be positive, pleasant, 
even though just like the shower, maybe it's not always. To just be aware, notice the feedback, and to discern when it's helpful to attune more to the pleasant or maybe to the neutral, to step back and have a little more equanimity. So, noticing the effect on your heart, on your mind. Noticing the effect. So, um, this practice is deeply supported by curiosity, interest, inquiry. And one of the key relation, one of the key questions is, um, it's framed in different ways, but what's the relationship to this? What's my relationship to this? What's the mind's relationship to what's happening right now? That's one way of attuning to whether a firm resolve or a gentle invitation or a question, the more helpful or wise ways to relate to whether it's a shift of behavior or a shift of attitude or a healing process, whatever it is. There's also, as I mentioned at the very beginning, resolves or resolutions to change sort of broadly courses of action in life as as well as formal practice, right? And um, invitations, resolves, and those questions can support embodied learning. In other words, beneficial habits, beneficial ways of being, right? And we all have these. They can allow us to perform simple things or not so simple things with little conscious awareness, right? Like driving a car, riding a bike, typing, handwriting. Can you imagine how agonizing it would be if you had to write the way you did when you were first learning to spell the alphabet and write the letters? Ugh, (laughs) we'd never get anything done, right? So thank goodness that becomes just kind of encoded in these little micro, eventually, skills and embodied learnings. And the habit of using one's turn signal or doing a shoulder check and changing direction on a bike or in a car. These are all super beneficial. And I'm taking time to say that because often when people say the word habit, it has kind of a negative valence to it. Oh, habit. Some of them are really good. And this is powerful to notice because these habits are the unnoticed, often unseen subroutines of our lives, right? A lot of what we do is automatic, a staggering amount of it. And a lot of that's good. It's very good news, right? And not all of it is. You know, a habit that worked well 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago might not work so well now. Might not be appropriate now or necessary. So these unnoticed subroutines, these um, habits, shortcuts, they replace a lot of conscious intention and choice. I'm going to say that again. Habits replace a lot of conscious choice and intention. I used to call them the thieves of intention, but it's not entirely true because sometimes they're the vehicles of intention. I'm really grateful I cultivated the habit to brush my teeth. That's that's helpful. So it can be helpful also to peer at them or inside of them, especially the ones that seem to not be working so well. And this soft, open awareness, this open focus, receptive awareness practice is incredibly helpful at seeing exactly this kind of mental activity. 
the assumed, the encoded, the blind spots. And it's like that openness to allowing anything allows things that some part of our minds many years ago may have decided, oh, that's just automatic. That's like, that's just part of the software now. Here we go. Right. Not important. So directed attention, as valuable as it is to the breath or to metta, often isn't as helpful for helping us see these broader, subtler mental activities. It's, if I have no agenda, the agenda is simply to be aware. It's staggering to me how many things I saw that I didn't, never saw before. Because it just wasn't deemed worth it. It wasn't like the breath. It wasn't a special state, you know. But holy cow, this is arising like every day or every hour. That's worth seeing. And as many of you have already discovered in your meditation practice, that seeing, that seeing of sati, of mindfulness, of awareness, has this really powerful property. These subroutines, these habits, when seen with just a little bit of discernment, the beneficial ones will continue. And the not-so-beneficial ones begin to come apart. They begin to dissolve, loosen. And this can be a long process, and it's not a perfect one. But there's a certain kind of trust. As long as there's just a little bit of discernment of this is helpful for self, and or other, and or all, this is unhelpful. Just that little compass point can help the beneficial automatic actions to continue and increase and the unbeneficial ones to start to wither away. I'll say more about this towards the end of the talk, but um, it's extremely helpful not to be blamey, criticizey, self-judgy about this process. That tends to lock the bad stuff in because there's a relationship and it's an adversarial relationship. And there's, you know, there's times for a good strong no, but even that good strong no can be said with love. That classic example of pulling the little kid out from the street when there's traffic coming on. So, as I've been talking about, there's a certain kind of wisdom that supports good habits and prunes away not-so-good ones. Another couple of ways to um, sort of walk this down, maybe, into daily life or daily practice is, again, to make the distinction between transient pleasure or pain and actual benefits or drawbacks. Right. Transient pleasure or pain versus outcome, result, effect. One way of doing this is to like notice how you feel the moment or the day after engaging in an unhelpful habit. Or to even, and this comes usually a little further along in the development of the awareness of it, Imagine how you might feel or remember how you felt the next time one is about to indulge. Um, So this can be true of like diet, for example, or am I going to choose to um, sit and binge watch something while eating unhealthy but tasty food versus going on a hike or talking to a good friend like and there are times where spending time alone doing some kind of like pleasurable activity might be appropriate right and there are times where self-care might be appropriate and to notice what is going to be the impact of this action versus that one what's the effect I find it particularly helpful in my own practice to notice 
because of that negativity bias we most of us carry, notice the effects of a good action after it's complete or even during it. Like cultivating goodwill or just simple kindness. Like an act of kindness, how does that make you feel right afterwards? It might even feel really good during, right? And to to savor that, to really take time to let that sink in. So it's a little bit of a hack, but we can start to stack the reward system in our favor in this way, right? Ajahn Jeff from Tennessee Bhikkhu talks about um, trading candy for gold. Trading candy for gold. The candy in formal meditation might be that great fantasy about some desert island. You pick, take your pick, right? Whereas the gold might be bringing the attention right here, right now. And the gold lasts longer. It might take longer for the gold to cultivate. Wow, it's a difference. This also works when weaning oneself off of unhelpful pleasures by using more helpful ones. In recent years, I've been serving as a chaplain, often with the dying at a hospital. And this is a level one trauma hospital. It is a stressful place. And somehow after COVID, I think I maybe was influenced by one of my peers or two of my peers, I'd gotten in the habit of reaching for a sweet treat midday as a sort of reward for being, you know, kind and showing up for all this difficult stuff. And I was noticing the effect on my waistline and on my metabolism. I'm like, this isn't really going in a good direction. You know, it's not helpful for me at this stage of my life and body and traded it out for the, um, habit of taking a brisk walk in this absolutely gorgeous campus next door, you know, seeing the light and filtering through the trees and listening to birds and seeing young college students around who are happy. So that's another example of trading. I'm sure you can think of one in your own life, right? Something I can trade out. And boy, I can tell you the effects of that brisk walk were way better than the effects of a cookie, right? Not just long-term, but even in the moment, like it felt better. I felt more energized and connected. So it might be a bit of a silly example, but it's an example of weaning off of the unhelpful and moving to the helpful. You can consider for yourself the equivalent of that, maybe in your own mind, and your own formal practice, weaning off of impulses, like, some like resentment or grudge or self-blame and just gently allowing something else to come in. Maybe even the quality of observing that might have some compassion in it or patience in it. That's another way of weaning off. doesn't mean you have to change anything. Just a subtle shift of attention in the moment. All of this does take virya, which I talked about energy effort some weeks ago that came up. There's a few different kinds of effort to consider here. Gentle persistence. Sayadaw Utejaniya, a sort of root teacher for Andrea Fella and one of the main teachers for me in absentia, but I've been very influenced by him. He really talks about this as being a gentle persistence. Gentle persistence. And in my own practice, I think of it as light as the, like the touch of a flower petal on your cheek or a butterfly wing on a flower petal, like that, just, but repeated. Okay, coming back, back to this. That's um, especially useful when seeing impulses that just arise time and time again, ones that are not to be acted on. And maybe you all had perfect childhoods and young adulthoods and don't have these, but no, I, I got some karma coming up, right, from the past and just seeing it, seeing it. 
And that gentleness somehow has an effect that is transformative rather than a harshness. Packing it just seems to give it more energy somehow. And there are occasional moments that are really helpful for courageous or even heroic, like weighty effort. Like no. Good, strong no. Again, with that love. That kind of effort, actually both kinds of effort, are often associated with willpower. And there's an American scientist, she's actually, I think she's still based at Stanford here in Northern California, Kelly McGonigal, talks about willpower. And I love the way she kind of says it. She puts it in terms of willpower, won't power, that no, and want power. Want power, as in the aspiration, the desire, the resolve, the intention. And many like different ways of relating to will, willpower, won't power, and want power can be helpful in any given moment. You can experiment, right, and see which is more helpful. There's every single time we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. And every single time we say no to something, even if it's by default, we're saying yes to something else. And figuring out what that yes is and what that no is for yourself, which is more useful. So, gentle invitation, allowing this gentle affirmative approach often does work very well with open awareness or with minds that are drawn to it. And to remember that it's always, always okay to begin again, whether it's the next stitch the next moment, the next conversation, the next breath, whatever it is, right? So to just briefly name that, that might be that and that curiosity, those questions, those invitations, those might be two of the most core transferable skills of practice into life. It's openness, curiosity, willing to experiment and begin again. Such huge allies. On the flip side, as I mentioned earlier, self-criticism is particularly unhelpful, really unhelpful for practice. It's entirely possible to acknowledge things you don't like about yourself or things I don't like about myself without the added sort of edge of blame and self-criticism. And there's actually been studies done on this. And it's not good for meditation practice. It's actually not good for behavior change. I used to think that being rough, not exactly hard on myself, but sort of like very disciplined was what it took to keep myself on track. And have discovered over the years that this friendlier, invitational way of being has actually done a lot more to um, promote the kind of life that benefits myself and other people than that edgier kind of critical approach ever did. The research backs this up. As I said, I don't have the studies in my mind at the moment, but I I do have one example from a study. This was in an article called Being Your Own Best Friend. Um, I believe it might have been in Psychology Today. I don't remember for sure. But they talked about um, studying doctors, medical doctors, and how um, a compassionate and self-compassionate approach helped not only the patient shift, but it actually 
changed the biological markers and the attitude of the doctor in a beneficial way. Isn't that interesting? Like it was a direct correlation in real time. And when they track later what the patients did, the patients did better over time. And I don't think they tracked the doctors over time, but I bet the doctors were doing better too, right? Without moving into this um, more critical or self-critical paradigm way of being. So compassion and kindness, curiosity, invitation, and sometimes firmness, but a firmness that comes with love, those are ways that resolve weave themselves into practice in life. So in closing, I'll just say that there's another word or another meaning of the English word resolve that I think um, speaks to this. And that those meanings are to sort of come to agreement, to come to clarity through the conditions as they've evolved to be. So this points to a trust in the cultivation of conditions of practice, right? That cultivating the right conditions can allow a resolution to naturally come. Just like when an orchestra is warming up, they're all hearing the feedback from each other, all the different notes, all the different instruments. And eventually they hone in on a single chord. And it's almost a magical moment. comes into focus. So that too, that too can come. Thank you for your kind attention. So friends, we have a few minutes to do question and answer um, or comments. I'm going to pause the recording so we can speak freely. And then at the end of our time, I'll um, start again to dedicate the merit. Okay. And I just want to thank you for the sincerity of your practice, for our time together today. And invite you to tap into your heart your mind and notice what kind of effect this time together has had and attune to any sense of positive effects Moments of peace or curiosity or intrigue, invigoration, interest, joy of community. And to wish that those benefits, whatever they are, may spread through our own lives, our own hearts and minds and habits, and out to the lives that we touch and the lives that they touch on and on and outward and outward. May all beings benefit from this practice. May all beings be safe, happy, peaceful, and free. teaching an in-person day-long at IMC Insight Meditation Center on January 28th. It's on the seven factors of awakening. And um, we may stream it over YouTube. We haven't quite decided yet, but those who are local, if you want to check it out, recordings later, please feel free. It'd be a delight to have you. Okay. And um, till we meet again, Meta, meta, meta. Good wishes. Feel free to mute, unmute, and say goodbye if you like. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew.
Thank Bye. you. See you all next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much. This Bye. is on. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you all. Be well, everyone. Thanks for coming.